I'm so glad that you're here today. We're in part two of our series, The Christmas Light, and I believe that God is going to speak to you in just a really powerful way. I'm excited about the talk today because I believe with all of my heart that God is going to use it. I want you to think about something as we get ready to go into this message today. Some of you are here today, and if you're just like really transparent with yourself and honest with yourself, sort of a a momentary self-assessment, you'd be like, you know what? I can look back at a time in my life when I was much closer to God than what I am right now. I remember a time. It may be that you look back to your childhood and you say, you know, I remember a time when like my parents took me to church and maybe you went to church, maybe you went to Sunday school. Maybe you remember a time in your life when you went to like a summer VBS, a vacation Bible school. And, and there when you were young, you're a little boy, a little girl, much like these kids, you just, in your own way, you just connected with God and you invited Jesus to come into your life. And that's been a long, long time ago. Some of you, maybe it was at a youth camp when you were a student and you made a commitment to Christ years ago go. And then just gradually over time, you've just gotten away from that. And you just look at your life right now and you say, you know what? When I really look at my life as it is right now, I'm just not closer to God like I once was. Maybe some of you, your story is similar to my story. I was blessed in the fact that as young as I can remember, my parents took me to church. I remember going to Sunday school. In fact, my dad taught a Sunday school class. and I can remember every single week we would go to church. But my dad's uh, job situation would take us out of our hometown, um, out of our home church, and we moved to another place in Georgia. And it was there that I noticed a trend. Even though I was only 10 years old, I noticed a trend that was beginning to happen. I noticed that my parents just weren't going to church like they once was. And I'm 10, so I can't really do anything about it. You know, they don't really recommend that 10-year-olds drive cars these days. And so if my mom and dad wasn't going, we weren't going. And looking back, I think, you know what they were trying to do? And a lot of times, tragically, people try to do a similar thing. They say, well, you know what? If I can't find a church like my home church, I'm just not going to go. And sometimes people move to a different community or a different city, and, and they start, and they're like, hey, I went to this church, this church, just looked around, can't find a church that is exactly like their home church. Somebody gave me some good advice. Actually, when I left my home church to move down to Florida years ago to go to college, and this person said, it was my pastor, actually. And he, he didn't, he was a very humble guy, so he wasn't saying it braggadociously at all. He was just saying, hey, Jeff, he said, here's the thing, don't ever try to find a home church once you move, because there's never going to be a church that's going to be quite like your home. And I think really, looking back, my parents were just trying to find something just like home church, or I don't know, maybe there's some other factors they just never communicated to us kids. But I noticed gradually we were not going to church. And after a while, it's just like, no, we're not only going sporadically, we're not going at all. Sunday after Sunday, having grown up, maybe that's a lot like your story that you were going to church and your parents stopped going and that affected you and you just gradually have gotten away from God over the years. Maybe for you, you started drifting from God when you went off to college and it's like, you know what? While I was at home, my parents made me go to church and they're like, hey, as long as you live under my roof, you're gonna follow my rules and you're gonna go to church, we're gonna go to church. And then you had options. You didn't have that same parental accountability when you went off to college and you're like, you know what, I don't have to go. And maybe when you did go to class, you had some professors that were trying to debunk the faith that you had embraced growing up your whole life. And you started wondering as some other students, you know, is the Bible real? Is Did God exist? Is everything that we've heard about Jesus accurate? Maybe some of those questions 
questions and maybe some of those doubts begin to enter into your mind. Or maybe, you know, looking back, quite honestly, you just picked up on the party life, had not been a part of your life before. You're like, you know, just partying hard on Saturday night. Last thing you want to do is go to church on Sunday morning. Or maybe, maybe you were just lazy and you didn't get up. You're like, hey, Sunday I can sleep in. And you're just, you know, little by little you've drifted. Maybe for you it's not been any of those things. Maybe for you, when you started drifting, maybe when you lost your connection to God was when you experienced a tragedy in your life. Maybe it's when you lost somebody to death or maybe you went through a divorce or maybe there was a disappointment of some sort and you just, you know, you just begin to drift from your faith. Um, this past Friday, two days ago, 10 a.m. Friday morning, um, I spoke at the funeral service of Marcia Warren. She passed away uh, last Sunday afternoon. Uh, her husband, Brian, their three kids, and some other family members were actually in the 930 service. And here's a family that has impeccably lived out their faith. Marcia, Brian, the kids, they've just never wavered in their faith. And they didn't like the fact, of course, that they were losing their mom, their wife, their loved one, but they stayed true to God. And uh, you know what? Uh, it caused there to be able to be this sense, although it was a huge loss, this sense of celebration, knowing that Marcia is right now in the presence of Jesus but maybe that's not been like the way that you embraced it. Maybe you're saying, hey, I wish I'd been like that, but I wasn't. And maybe whatever tragedy it was, it just put you in spiritual drift ever since. So right here on the front edge of this talk, even before we get to the text, which we're about to do in just a few moments, I want to ask you to consider something. I want to ask you to consider re-engaging in the faith of your past. Maybe for you, it's re-engaging in the faith of your childhood where you look back and you say, you know what? I remember that vacation Bible school. I remember that time when I invited Jesus into my life. I remember when I felt close to God as a student. I remember that time as an adult when I walked close to God. And for you, maybe today is all about you re-engaging in the faith of your past. Maybe, and I hope that this will be true, that by the time that we get to the end of this service, that you will have taken a step in the right direction, spiritually speaking. And it may have been a long time since you've taken a positive step. And for you, it may feel like it's a baby step, but it's a step nevertheless, and you're stepping in the right direction toward re-engaging in the faith of your past. Truth be told, there are many of you that are in this room right now that you've been thinking about that. You've been just recently sensing, hey, that is something I really need to do. And it's like, you know, how do you know? And I don't know, but God knows what you're thinking. And, and I just know I run into people all the time. That's like, you know, I, I know that I need to get back to where I was. I know that I need to re-engage with God, my faith. Well, last week, we spent the majority of our time in John's gospel. For those of you that are newer to the church, you know, there's the Old Testament and then there's New Testament uh, that make up the Bible. And you come over to the New Testament, out of Malachi in the Old Testament, and you come to the first four gospels. In fact, if you're a new Christian, that's, that's where I always encourage new Christians to start reading. Like, go to the first chapter and the first verse of Matthew and start reading. And there's these four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these great men are all writing narratives. They knew about Jesus' life and miracles and death and resurrection, and they write about it. And as I mentioned to you last week, it's amazing how that God, inspiration, that God would breathe upon them, 
And they would write as they were moved upon by the Holy Spirit. And yet the reality is God would use their own uniqueness and their own personalities and their own temperaments, and they would write. And as I shared with you last week, when you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew and Luke, they both start early on, like at the birth of Jesus or just before, whereas Mark and John start later in Jesus's life. Well, we spent a lot of time in John last week. Today, I'm going to take you to Matthew's gospel, and we're going to see together and learn together what Matthew wants us to see. And one of the things you're going to notice is that it does not take us very long at all to come and meet with this king, a very wicked uh, king, by the way, by the name of Herod. In fact, Herod shows up in chapter 2, the very first verse of that chapter. And we're going to journey there momentarily, but I think that there's some background that will be productive. You see, I know that many of you have read this account before, but there's a backstory to it maybe you're not familiar with. And so after this message today, the next time you go back and you read Matthew, and it may be that you do it this Christmas with your family. We do that every year. We gather the kids together even when they were small, and we would read the, the birth of Christ from, generally speaking, from Luke's gospel. Maybe you'll read it from Matthew or Luke, and we'd read it. Now that the kids have gotten older and their own families, they now do that with their families. But I think for Matthew, when you go back and you read Matthew chapter 2 in the future, you're going to understand some things that were happening around it that you didn't know prior to today. And so let's just get into some background for the next few moments. And simply, I would pose it in as a question. Just who is King Herod? Who is King Herod? Herod was actually the king of Judea. We know this at the time when Jesus was born. It may be helpful for you to also know that Herod is this incredibly smart, extremely talented, and it is an understatement to say that he was politically polished. This, this was a guy that knew how to work the system. He was clever. He was smart. He was controlling. He was manipulative. He was very ambitious. He was exceptionally arrogant. He was extraordinarily wicked. This is, and you're going to see this, how wicked this king was. So um, we're going to learn about that. One of the things that some of you don't know about Herod is that Herod actually had, I'm not making this up, Herod actually had 10 wives, and that's all I want to say about that. I don't want to say about chasing credit card receipts, Montana, I don't want to do, I don't want to say any of those. I'm just saying that Herod had 10 wives, and he had numerous sons. I mean, he had these 10 wives, and he had lots of sons from among the 10 wives. Now, here was what he would typically do, just to tell you how ruthless he is. Herod was all about preserving a legacy. It was very important that Herod, listen now, maybe you don't know this, that there would always be somebody connected to him that would be seated on the throne of Judea. So long after he was gone, he wanted to make sure that a member of his family would always, there's like this lineage of kings that would come from him that would always sit on the throne of Judea, no matter what it took, and nobody better get in the way of that. And if you happen to try to get into the way of that, you were going to merely be another statistic that was going to be a part of Herod's, you know, violence. So Here's a guy, 10 wives, many sons, and he would say to these sons, he'd be like, this was so typical of Herod. Uh, historians tell us he, it was like 
He would say to a son, hey, I want you, because he has all these sons, I want you to be the next king. You're the guy. You're my son. You're going to be the next king of Judea once I, 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 you know, pass. And then that son would disappoint him or, you know, he, he would, he changed. Listen, Herod changed his will four different times, but he changed his mind many more times than that. And if he had a son that he wanted to succeed him and that son disappointed him or he changed his mind, he would not only say, no, it's not going to be you. Now it's going to be you. He would oftentimes, think about this, the ruthlessness, he would often have that son executed. Not just say, you're not going to be the king. Uh, You're not going to be the king, but he'd have his own boys, his own sons executed. This is, again, just how ruthless that he was. He killed one of his wives. We know that. And he actually murdered so many rabbis in and around Jerusalem and Judea that rabbis did everything they possibly could to steer clear of Herod. Now, that gives you a little bit of insight into him. Now, by the time that we arrive at the narrative concerning Jesus's birth, what we're about to see. So, as we read this, you need to know that Herod at this time is about 70 years old, and he has a dreaded, painful kidney disease. Knowing that his health is fading, perhaps you've never known this as you've read this story, knowing that his health is fading, he becomes very motivated at this point, not knowing how long he has, realizing it's probably not that long. He chooses, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to consolidate my power, and I'm going to protect my legacy. And as he's thinking this, and as he's planning this, and as he's attempting to control all this and maneuver all this and politicize all this, it was around that same time that Herod receives news that is terribly disturbing to him. About five miles south of where he is, there is a new king that is just learning to walk. And here's where we pick it up the words of Matthew. So I want you to look on the screens and I'm going to read several verses for the next couple of moments and I want you to follow along with me. Matthew chapter 2, we begin at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi, we used to call them wise men when we were kids, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been been born a king of the Jews. They're like going through the streets of Jerusalem. Where is he? Where is he? Look at why they know this. We saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. So they're like going all around Jerusalem. And again, going back to Herod, here's a guy that is trying to consolidate his power, extend his own lineage, his own kingship through the lives of his relatives, in this case, his sons. And now there's an announcement. There's a new king. What do you mean there's a new king born king of the Jews? When Herod heard this, He was what? Say it with me. He was disturbed. He was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, let's do a timeout right here. Why is all Jerusalem also disturbed? Are they disturbed? Are they shaken by the fact that there's the announcement of a new king born king of the Jews? Are they disturbed about that? That is not why they're all in, in, you know, their nerves are are afraid. It is because anytime Herod was furious, there was going to be problems. If Herod was angry, there was going to be trouble. So King Herod heard this. He was disturbed in awe Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he wasn't a religious guy at all, but he called them together and he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Look at what they say. 
In Bethlehem of Judea, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, and they quote the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And I want you to look at this huge line, verse 8. He sent them to Bethlehem, the Magi, Herod does, and said, go and make a careful search for the child, for the king, and as soon as you find him, report to me, look at this line, so that I too may go and worship him. How many of you know Herod had no interest in worshiping Jesus? He actually wanted to kill the baby king, the toddler king. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were what? Say it with me, overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshiped him. So here are these powerful guys, magi, wealthy guys, uh, held in high esteem, and when they come into the presence of a toddler, of a baby, toddler king, they bow, and they surrender, and they begin to worship this king. Just a child, a mere child, a toddler, at best. Now, let's pick up. While we're reading, let's go on with verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So, you know, God made certain that he sends uh, word to the Magi. The Magi returned to their own country by another route. It's like God is saying to them through a dream, hey, don't go back to Herod. Herod's intentions are not, you know, they're not, they're not clean. They're not right. And um, he's not looking for the toddler king to worship him. He wants to kill him. And so they don't go back to Herod. They went home, but they took a different path. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child, not to worship him, but to kill him. So he got up, Joseph did. He took the child Jesus and his mother Mary during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Here's what another prophet had said much earlier than this. Out of Egypt, although Jesus was born in Bethlehem, out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been, what's the word here? Outwitted. And nobody did that to Herod and got away with it. But when he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was, and you see the language again, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys born in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. That's a lot of reading there. But I just wanted you to see a little bit of sort of the nature and temperament of Herod. And as I mentioned to you just a few moments ago, when Herod was enraged, people got hurt. And when Herod was, ang Herod was angry, fact of the matter is, people often died. Nothing was going to get in the way of what Herod wanted. Because here's a man that is so intoxicated by power. He is so dialed in to simply wanting to protect his own legacy and controlling outcomes. To say, you know, often you hear that expression, control freak. He was like a control free, uh, freak to the 100th power. I mean, this guy wanted to control outcomes like you can't believe. Now, according 
to what Matthew is telling us, Herod had been outwitted by the Magi. And again, we called them wise men when we were kids. And since Herod cannot isolate where this baby king actually is, even though he's just about five miles away, about five miles south of where he is, but he doesn't know that. He doesn't know who the baby is. The Magi have gone back by another route. He then, Herod does, issues an order that is more reprehensible and wicked than anything that we've ever seen Herod do, uh, do to this point. And again, you saw the language, and I'll just read it again. He gave the order, and here's the order. Kill all the boys in Bethlehem, two years old and under. Professionally speaking, there are probably numerous ones of you that your vocation puts you in the proximity of death often. And so does mine. As a pastor, I, uh, I'm often in proximity. Families lose a loved one. There's a funeral. There's planning a service. And so really in what I do and what I'm called to do, I'm like many who are involved in, in uh, the medical field or other fields. I mean, you're around death way more than you'd ever want to be. But I can tell you and other people would validate this, that there's just something about the death of a child that is at pain, that is a pain that is at a level that is almost incomprehensible. I know that some of you that are right here in this room, you could talk about it not just from, it, from a professional perspective, but from a personal perspective because that's been true in your life or in your family, the death of a child. And the reason I mention that is so many times we do this. We don't want to do it. We don't plan to do it, but we just read the Bible and we read it as though it were like uh, a book of fiction, like we'd pick up a novel and, you know, there's characters in the story, but they're not real people. They're made up by an author. And, and, and this is what I just want to really resonate with you right now. These are real families, and these are real kids. These are real little boys under the age of two. And as I often do when I was working on this talk, I, I inserted myself into the story. I, I just try to do that to help me to try to understand the passage. I'm like, okay, what if you were standing there? And I tried to imagine what it would be like for these families as, as Herod's soldiers came rolling into this little town and its vicinity and would go to these little homes and huts and little farmhouses and would walk in looking for little boys two years, eight, two years of age and under. And right in front of their parents would drag these little boys out of their houses and right in front of the eyes of their parents would murder them right on the spot. And if their parents happened to get in the way, they would be murdered as well. And these are real families. And these are real little boys. These things really happen. These are really kids. And it just sort of hit me, you know, thinking about Brody, our, our grandson. And I mentioned to you recently that, you know, a Sunday or two ago, we we're so excited to know that they're going to be flying down Christmas Eve, probably getting around noon that day. I'm already, in fact, this morning when I woke up early, I'm an early riser. One of the first things I was thinking about before I just jumped out was, you know, it's, it's only about 15 days. And, you know, Brent and Nicole and the baby's going to be coming, going to the airport how exciting that we get when we go and pick them up from the airport and the girls, you know, they'll always run and they'll be like screaming and, and they're so excited to see their Florida family. And now knowing that, that Brody's running all over the place because he's a little over one now. And I was thinking about all of that, knowing where I was going with the message and just thinking there was a lot of families that love their little boys, just like we love Brody. And Herod is so ruthless 
and he's so wicked and he's so vile and he is so threatened by a toddler king that he tells his men, go and round up all the little boys, two years of age and under, and I want you to kill them. Can you imagine, friends, I mean, just blocking out everything that you're thinking about or you've got to do tomorrow, what's left on your shopping list, and you're just fully engaging in what's actually playing out here. Can you imagine the profound sadness in Bethlehem and that surrounding area as these little boys, one by one, are ripped from their families and murdered on the spot? This man is sick. He is sick in more ways than one. He's, he's mentally, he's emotionally, he's spiritually sick. And, and we're told that he's physically so sick. I mentioned to you earlier that he's about 70 years of age when all this is going down. He's got this painful, dreaded kidney disease. And it gets worse and the pain intensifies to the point that, that Herod reaches a place in his own life to be such a tough, rugged guy. He just can't handle the pain anymore. And it was it's not easy to com commit suicide. Like in that day, there was a lot more challenges associated with it. And he just reaches a point that the pain becomes so great that Herod is actually going to take his own life. He's going to commit suicide. And at the very last moment, what happens is his cousin, he has a cousin that comes in and finds him and saves Herod from killing himself, and Herod continues to suffer for the rest of his life. He reaches a point, Herod does, when he knows he's getting real near the end. I want you, and again, if you've never realized just how bad this guy is, you get it this morning. One of the last edicts or orders that he gives, he knows he's getting a lot closer to death. So he has his men, his lynchmen. He has them gather up all the successful guys around Jerusalem and Judea, all the guys that were wealthy and influential. He has them all gathered up and he said, I want you to go and get them all. I want you to get these dads. I want you to get these husbands, these brothers, these sons. I want you to gather up these men and I want you to put them in prison and I want you to keep them in prison until the moment that I die. And when I die, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take all those men and I I want you to murder them within the hour so that there's going to be tears in Jerusalem because Herod was clever enough to know nobody was going to cry for Herod because Herod was hated about as much as he hated other people. He knew nobody would cry over his death. He had been way too wicked, but at least there would be tears in Jerusalem on the day that he died. Fortunately, fortunately, right after he died, guess what happened? They released all these men to go back to their own families. Luke 2. Look again. I want you to look at these two verses. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said to him, remember they fled from Bethlehem to Egypt, said to him, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life, they're dead. Now, I want to start tying this up because we don't have a lot of time left, about eight, nine, ten minutes at most. And I want to just sort of tie this together at the end before we're done. What is amazing when I read this account and as I, and perhaps you'll do the same, reflect on Matthew's narrative, what is interesting is that Herod the Great, as he was known, Herod the Great, fierce king of Judea, eventually becomes... Nothing more than a footnote or a sidebar in the story of a toddler king. 
In fact, if you were thinking about it, if moments, and I want you to use your imagination here for just a moment, if, if in the waning moments of Herod's life, some of the people, some of his trusted comrades had gathered around him and said, Herod, you know, before you die, there's some things that we want to tell you. And, and by the way, Herod, before you go, we've got some bad news and some good news to share with you. What do you think you want first? And he might would have said, and again, this, this is not in the Bible we use in our imagination here. But what if they said, you want some good news or the bad news? What do you want first? And he said, well, I've been on the receiving end of a lot of bad news. So how about it? Some good news. All right, Herod, you want the good news first? We'll tell you some good news. Hundreds of years from now, over hundreds of years and among millions of people, they're going to read about you, Herod. They're going to read your name in print. Millions of people, millions and millions of people scattered over hundreds of years. They're going to hear about you. They're going to read your name and they are going to know that you were once a powerful, fierce king in Judea. And he said, really, really? And, you know, in his arrogance, he'd been, wow, that is some good news, guys. That's really good news. Bad news? What's the bad news? Well, Herod, if you must know, the bad news, when they hear your name and read your name, you're not going to be the main character in the story. The part, that part, the main character, that's not going to belong to you at all. It will actually belong to the little toddler king born in Bethlehem. You know, the one that has you so outraged and paranoid. Eighty years later, after all this went down, Herod is long gone. 80 years after what I've been describing to you. Herod is long gone. Jesus has grown up. He's lived a sinless life. He's had his teachings. He's had his miracles. He's had his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection. And the apostle John, as I mentioned to you last week, in his account, remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John doesn't pick up Jesus' birth, but he knows about his life. And how many of you remember last week where Mary went after Jesus died on the cross? Where did Mary go? To live with John. Because from the cross, as I shared with you, and you've read this in the scriptures, many of you, Jesus looked down from the cross in his dying moments, and he said, Mom, behold your son. And he was talking about John. John, behold your mom. And again, um, historians and scholars tell us that from that point forward, most likely, Mary was actually taken into the home of, of John. And can't you imagine, as I shared last week, all the questions that John would have been asking Mary. Mary, you know, uh, we were around Jesus, you know, because Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, contemporaries of Jesus. And, uh, you know, I saw his life. I saw some of the miracles. Mary, I was there when your son, I saw him. Oh, man, I heard some of his teachings. It was so transformative. Changed me. Changed the world. Changed everybody that heard it that was willing to act upon it. And, but tell me more. I mean, what was it like? I mean, you and Joseph taking off and going to Bethlehem and Herod and all of that. Again, this is 80 years later, you know. John's an old guy. It's like it's time to write my account. It's time to write my gospel. And you saw these two verses last week, but I want to take you back to them again today. And I want you to look at this. This is what John says. He's an old man now, and he says in regards to Jesus, in him, in Jesus, there was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overpowered it. That's good news, isn't it? So now what? Now what? 
You've learned a lot about Herod. Next time you read, I guarantee you, you're going to understand Matthew chapter 2 more so than you ever have before. But you're asking probably in your mind a relevant question. What does that have to do with my life? And it has a lot to do with your life, probably in ways that you've never even thought about. You see, Jesus' life really is a light. That's why we're calling, and you see it right there on the screen right now, the light of Christmas. Jesus' life is a light, and much has been attempted to put out that light, to overpower that light, to destroy that light. That's been happening for 2,000 years now, but I'm happy to tell you that his life and his light is shining as bright today as it ever has before. And maybe in your own life, you've had some dark seasons. Maybe in your life, you've just said, you know what? I've had loss. I've had tragedy. I've had some unanswered prayer. I've had some broken relationships. Maybe you look at your life, and I asked you earlier to maybe reflect back a time when you felt closer to God than you do these days, and you say, you know what? I remember that. I, I remember that. I remember that summer camp. I remember going away to that Christian camp. I remember being in VBS. I remember being in Sunday school. I remember walking with God. I remember being a part of that campus Christian club when I was at that university. I remember what it was like to walk with God, to be faithful. I knew what it was like to know that God and I was really connected. And you know what I want you to know? That even though maybe between that time and now, there have been some dark seasons in your life. Here's what I want you to know. There's been that little flicker of light, and you've known it. You've known it. There's been something on the inside of you that is sad. You got to get back to that. You got to go back there. And that's why I ask you at the beginning of this talk to just say, you know, what can I do to re-engage in the faith of my past, maybe in the faith of my childhood, and it's taking a step in the right direction today. And maybe you've come through some dark times. Maybe you look back over your life and say, I've got so much regret. I lived my life in such a stupid way for so long, but I know I need to get reconnected with God. And you're like, you know what? Does God understand the dark season that I've been in or that I'm in? And I'm telling you, he does. And there's that little light in you that no matter how dark things have been at times, there's been that light in your life that to has told you Jesus is real, that Jesus loves you, and that he wants to be your savior and your forgiver and your friend. And he really does. Does he understand the dark places? Oh, yeah. Read a book some time ago now, but it just brought a little statement. Shane Wheeler wrote the book. And I want you to see just one paragraph, what he says, and then we're going to close. He said, I have good news for you. Jesus isn't only on the summit. He's also in the deep valleys, on the windswept slopes, and the cavernous crevices. He's in the seemingly dark places of your exhaustion and confusion. He's in the briar patch amid all the tangle and thorns and confusion. And it's where he does some of his best work. And he's able to do that for you right here today. Would you stand? Closing prayer. Everybody stand. Would you just bow your heads right there where you're at and close your eyes? And if you just say, you know what, Jeff, I need to take a positive step, a step in the right direction. I want to re-engage with the faith of my past. Through even the dark times, I knew, I knew deep down, I knew deep down that there was a God. I knew deep down that Jesus loves me. I knew deep down, I heard it a long time ago, but I've just drifted. But I want to re-engage with the faith of my past. I want to make a positive step today. 
I want to believe that God will meet me in my darkest hour and that Jesus really is a light that is like no other and that this light shines brightly 2,000 years later and there's been much that has tried to overwhelm and overcome and stamp out that light but that light still shines in dark places and the darkness cannot overcome it. So maybe right where you're at, you just pray this simple prayer in your heart and your mind before you go today. Dear Jesus, come into my life. I, I know that you want to save me. I know that you want to forgive me. I know that you want to be my friend. I want to reconnect with the faith of my past. I want to go back to what I know is true and right. I know what I heard. I know what I've learned. And I know that I've walked away from much of that. But beginning today, beginning right here, right now, this moment, I'm taking a positive step, a step toward you. Forgive me of my sins. Take my hand and lead me and guide me through all the dark places of my life because you are light and the darkness cannot overwhelm that. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, would you give me about 15 seconds? I want to really encourage you to be here next week. I'm going to give a talk. I don't think I've ever given a talk about this before. A lot of you don't know maybe that between the last verse in Malachi and the very first verse in Matthew, Matthew, we looked at Matthew. It's about 400 years. It's about 400 years. It doesn't just end, you know, Malachi. and then It's about 400 years of silence. But next week, I want to give you an idea of what I think God might have been up to during those 400 years. And I think you're going to be encouraged. I think it's going to strengthen you and help you during this Christmas season. I love you so much. I hope you have a great week. See you right back here next Sunday.